Well, good morning, Illuminate. It's always great to be with you. I like how when Josh said we were going to have chicken and waffles, there was like this collective sigh, you know, like this was like the spirit of God just moved across the audience, you know, with, with that. Hey, one quick comment on that. On that Easter invite, there's a QR code on there too. If you hit that, you can share the invite uh, through all of our social media platforms as well. So anyways, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name's Jason. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, as always, I love meeting people who are newer to the church. And right after the service, I'll be right down here uh, in front. So Here's where we're at. We are in Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, last week we covered the first three verses and it was there. <laughs> Some people think I made an overstatement. Hopefully I clarified it. I said that the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, it's like, it's like a key that gets inserted that unlocks the entire Bible. It's the interpretive key that unlocks your understanding of the entire Bible. So what happens? Well, God initiates a conversation with this man named Abram. Later, his name will be changed to Abraham, but for now, it's Abram. Question should be asked, what prompted this conversation? Well, it goes back to what we read earlier in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. God creates, creates all things. Pinnacle of creation, humanity, Adam and Eve, places them in the most perfect environment. Lays down one dietary restriction, don't eat from this tree. If you do, it's gonna be real bad for you real quick. You will experience sin, which brings forth death. Physical death, spiritual death, separation between them and the God who created them because God wants to have a real relationship with humans. He gives them the ability to choose to enter into a relationship with them. Trust, respect, communication. Without those three, those three things, you have nothing in a relationship. God wants to establish all those authentic relationships. That's what God wants. Gives them the ability to choose. Satan comes on the, on the scene. He tells a different story. And essentially he says, see, here's the deal. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because when you do, you're going to be like him. Ooh, that's tempting. Be like God. Well, kind of true, but kind of not. They're going to be like God in that they're going to know good from evil, but they are not going to become deity. They fall for it. Sin enters the world. Mankind begins to unravel quickly. God makes a promise, though. He says, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourselves. There will be a forthcoming Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer. The offspring of a woman will come and deliver a final blow to the works of Satan to the power of sin that is death, this offspring will be your deliverer. Great! But as we read, generation after generation gets more and more wicked. God starts over. You'd think we'd learn from the past. Humanity doesn't. Right back where we, where we started, the earth is a theater of violence. And everything seems really dark and hopeless, <laughs> you know? It's like, God promised to deliver, but it's like, really, it's like, how is this gonna come about? It seems impossible, and then God speaks to this man, Abram, and all of a sudden, it's, there's this little glimmer of light, there's this little spark of hope. And God makes a fourfold promise. Number one, he says, Abram, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. You know what's really cool? We said this last week. Do not doubt the Bible. Do not, do not doubt God and his ability to keep his promises. So we live on 
this side of the cross. We live on this side of these promises that were made to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, lo and behold, Abram has a grandchild by the name of Jacob. His name later is changed to Israel. He becomes the forefather of the Israelite nation. So that promise came true. And then God says, I'm going to make your name great. So to this day, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, they all hold the name of Abram or Abraham in very high regard. So that promise came true. Then he said, those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse. In other words, God says, I've got your back. You're going to see that in the text that we're going to read this morning. And then fourthly, and most importantly, God says, Abraham, through you, through your offspring, every family on earth is going to be blessed. That phrase right there, that's the interpretive key that unlocks the entire Bible. And here's how. See, the rest of the Bible, even the Old Testament, as it begins to unfold, you have these men. They're called prophets. God speaks to them, and they're receiving revelation about a forthcoming Messiah, where the Messiah would be born, the ministry he would have, even his manner of death, the specificity, the details, describing death by crucifixion hundreds of years before the Persians invented it and the Romans perfected it. So all of these crazy things you're starting to read as you work your way through the Old Testament, but they all point forward to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abram saying, through you, one will come who will be a blessing to every family on earth. This is why when the New Testament opens up, the very opening line, open up the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, verse one. It's a biography of the life of Jesus. There's several of them in your New Testament. And how does the author start? He says, okay, I know all you good God-fearing Jews. You know the promises made to Abram. From him, there will come a Messiah. So it's really important that we identify the lineage, the genealogy. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. It's all there. And then the author goes on to explain the life and ministry of Jesus and how he filled so many other Old Testament prophecies. So, uh, all of this in the first three verses. So things are starting off really, really well. Uh, when the New Testament authors look backwards at the life of Abram, they say something really interesting about him. And this is probably the greatest compliment one could receive. They call Abram the friend of God. Isn't that cool? Like, who are your friends? Well, God is my friend. That implies relationship. And we would ask God, God, who is your friend? God would say, well, Abram is my guy. He's my friend. The New Testament authors refer to Abram as the model of faith. Now, so often we read through the Bible and we think, man, I could never be like these, these heroes of the faith. I could never be like him or her. This guy's more relatable than you know. Because I don't know about you, but for me, it's very often like this. In, in, in my spiritual life, it's like, Two steps forward, and then what? Sometimes it's a big step back. This is the story in the life of Abram. And what we learn is that our faith in God is built through our consistent obedience. Watch this now. Especially when the road ahead is dark and you can't see the future. And it's simply a matter of trusting in what God has said. That's where faith grows. So uh, this is a, uh, uh, an amazing promise, these promises that are given to Abram. And uh, he's going to take God at face value. And um, he struggles. 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. God said, go forth from Ur, leave your relatives, leave the land that you know, step out of your comfort zone. You need to separate yourself from all the idolatry that was in your society and your culture. I'm calling you to something different. So he heads out, stops halfway in the land of Haran, takes his father with him. And his nephew, Lot, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. You are never too old to do something significant for God. More on that in a second. All right, so took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son. Lot turns out to be his nephew, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moray. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. All right, so Abram steps out in faith, says, God, I'm, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to leave it all behind. And, and, he, and he goes forth. Okay. Question. What do you do with God's word? Right. What do you do with the promises of God? Now, you may say, oh, well, I read about them. Good place to start. You may say, well, I spend time and I underline them. I highlight them in my Bible. That's cool. Um, uh, Maybe you even have them memorized. Great. The goal is to put them into practice. The psalmist, Psalm 34, such rich and beautiful language. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what he's saying? Take the word of God up into your life. Digest it. Make it a part of you. And when you act on it in faith, what you begin to see is who God is, specifically his goodness. Isn't that cool? You see how good God is, but you're never going to see the goodness of God if you're not putting your trust in him. This is the reason why some of us are a little stale right now, stagnant in our faith, because we're not really leaning into God and his word. Maybe we lean in a little bit, but then we kind of go to pull it back, right? And we trust more in ourselves than what God has for us. So what's about to happen to Abram now is really, really interesting. 75 years old, never too late to do great things for God. His entire life now, from this point forward, will bear witness to the reality of God. Oh, by the way, um, if you're breathing as a Christian, you are witnessing with your life. See, being in pastoral ministry for the last 30 years, has given me this really cool privilege. It's, 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 it's a sacred privilege, sacred moment. People invite you into the most precious moments of their lives. Very often, when they take their last breaths, I have seen terror, fear, regret, shame. What's next? What's on the other side? Have I done enough? What's waiting for me? And I have observed those who faith death with absolute confidence and assurance because these men and women have walked with God. They've tasted They've understood, they've experienced the goodness of God and they are ready, knowing 
what is next. Even as you face death, you have the, the opportunity to witness with your life. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, uh, Abram doesn't do so well. This is partial obedience. He's told to leave his family, but he takes his nephew, Lot. Lot will prove to be troublesome, by the way. Maybe in his mind he thinks he's doing him a favor. You know, it's like, I'll take this kid under my wing. You know, his father has died. Um, he's acquired a lot of things along the way, but he begins to, to move out. Then the text is really interesting here because it says that, that he stops at this place at Shechem to the Oak of Moray. You ever read stuff and you're like, okay, so? Well, if you've heard me preach before, you've heard me say, the biblical authors, especially Old Testament writers, they wasted not a drop of ink and not one word. Every word is important. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. In the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, that translation has a, a little footnote next to the word oak. If you have that, you can look at it, you can see it. And then that, that footnote denotes another word, terebinth. Terebinth, okay, you're like, what's that? Terebinth is actually another kind of tree. So you say, well, is it an oak tree at this location, or is it a terebinth tree, right? Well, I think maybe the context tells us a little bit about this, especially since we know that this is the land of Canaan. So why is there a question about which kind of tree it is, and why is this important? Well, the question arises because there's only one vowel that separates oak from terebinth. Right? Now, ancient Hebrew didn't use vowels. Uh, in order to understand the meaning of the word and what vowels were to be supplied, you had to understand that word in the context of the sentence and paragraph. Okay? Later, there were certain consonants, syllables, that would morph into vowels, and then even after that, they used dots and dashes. So those of you who are in seminary and you've studied Hebrew, you know that's what makes it so fun. Uh, Kind of, it's complicated. It's complicated language. So, what's interesting about this word terebinth is that it actually describes a kind of tree. It's a pistachio tree. And this, this terebinth tree also produces, secretes this thing called terpine, or terpene, from which they gather and make turpentine. Right? which they use as a medicinal salve for the skin back in the day. So this is a tree that was kind of special because you could, you could eat the pistachios that would feed you, and it, it had medicinal value. And so now, if you know anything about the Canaanite religion, they were polytheistic. These guys worshipped everything. If we took your Christmas tree and the way you decorated it and planted it in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites would pass by, they would bow down, and they would worship it. It would be something that they would recognize. They would decorate trees that they felt were special and sacred. The terebinth tree was one of them. This is located in the land of Canaan. So this is really interesting. So now you have this man who's being called by God into this foreign land that is filled with idolatry. And it's also filled with these people known as the Canaanites. They don't like foreigners, um, not at all. They're hostile. Uh, in fact, these people are going to be particularly troublesome to Abraham and his tribe. You say, well, why is that? Well, it actually goes back to Genesis chapter 9, if you remember, because Noah, as he gets off the ark, he starts well, but then he gets drunk, and he basically embarrasses himself in his own tent. And his son walks in on him, 
And instead of helping to restore his father's dignity, he goes out and he tells his brothers, right? Almost as if he's making fun of dad. Like a dad, he's drunk, he's passed out, he's naked, and he's laying in his tent. Meanwhile, his other brothers go in there and they defend their, their father's honor. So Noah wakes up and he realizes what, what just happened and, and he starts handing down a curse. But the curse doesn't come to the son that dishonored him. It's actually on his grandson, Canaan. Now, why did that happen? Well, we talked about how maybe Canaan in some way was involved in the humiliation of Noah. We don't exactly understand why, but whatever the case, he puts a curse on his grandson, Canaan. And essentially he says, your people are going to be bad. And, and that's exactly what we see happening now. There's this great hostility between Canaan and his descendants, the Canaanites and the Israelites, right? This is, that's the genesis, if you will, of that hostility. So now Abram's being called in this land. It's filled with Canaanites. This is a really gnarly place to be. This is Canaanite territory. It's like Sarai walks in and she's like, okay, this is the land. All right, these people are murderous. So in God's goodness, he has to remind him, verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's not necessarily going to be you. It's going to be your offspring. And that actually ends up being the case because when Abram dies, he doesn't own one inch of this land except for the plot that he's buried in. But his offspring will take possession of it. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. All right, so everything, you know, seems, seems pretty good at this point. He's uh, obeying God. He's in his land. This is, a, this is a step of faith. The people are hostile. And what happens next? A really unusual temptation. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. So imagine, right? Um, guys, have you ever had this moment in your marriage where um, you have this great plan and all of a sudden, you know, you execute this plan and things don't go according to plan. And your wife looks at you and, and is like, what have you gotten us into? Yeah. I see some of the ladies looking over. It's cool. We've all been there. If you haven't, then you haven't been married more than a month. <laughs> Be real, right? So it's like, uh, Abram, are you sure about this? This is the place? Okay, this, is, this was like prime real estate. We get here, and it's dry, and there's no food. You're going to hear from God again? Are you sure? Are you trusting God? Is this the same God speaking to you? This doesn't seem right. So they have to make this trip to Egypt where there's plenty of food because there happens to be this river, turns out to be the longest river in the world called the Nile, flows right through Egypt. So they make this trip up the river valley into Egypt just until the famine subsides. Verse 11, this is where things get really, really strange. So when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. He says, babe, you're gorgeous, verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this woman is that guy's wife. Then they're going to kill me because they're going to want you. They're going to let you live. So let's do this. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now, the scripture doesn't often emphasize one's beauty like this, so 
Sarai must have been just stunning in appearance. By the way, she's 65 years old. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Have you seen this Semite woman? Woo! And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, thinking that Abram was her brother. And he loads Abram. Abram becomes instantly super wealthy. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, servants, female donkeys, camels. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. Abram goes into preservation. Have you ever had this happen to you before? Um, external circumstances cause you to pull inward and think, how can I figure this out? Uh, he realizes that the beauty of his wife will appeal to the Egyptians, and they're going to kill him in order to get her. So imagine that conversation going down. Hey, Sarai. <laughs> you are so beautiful. She's like, go on. Yeah, this is a good conversation. She's liking this. Sarai, you are the most beautiful woman in this entire country. Your beauty surpasses that of any Egyptian woman. And that's going to be a problem for me. So I have a plan that involves us telling a half-truth, you becoming Pharaoh's wife, I get rich. <laughs> a little tension in the relationship. That's the plan. Now, what's interesting about this plan is it's, it's kind of believable because in Genesis chapter 20, we're told that uh, Abram and Sarah actually have the same father but a different mom. Okay, so that's weird. That's weird, right? Let's just call it for what it is. That's kind of weird. Uh, some believe that because the, this is at an early date in human history, the bloodlines were more pure. God hasn't laid down any marriage restrictions that would involve something like this. So whatever the case, they minimize the wife part and they focus on the sister. She's 65 years. I don't know, Egyptians, I have no idea. If you know, let me know. They have a thing for older women. She's 65 years old. It's been said that Semitic women don't fade early. This seems to be the case. What's going on? Well, Abram's trying to protect himself, and in doing so, in thinking about himself, he puts his wife in a very vulnerable situation. Hmm. Sound familiar? This happened with Adam and Eve, the very first marriage. By the way, when we sin, we never sin alone. Isn't that right? Uh, even when you do it in the privacy, thinking that nobody's looking, it's just you. When we do wrong, we never do it alone. It always has its consequences and its effects on those around us. Again, we saw this with Adam. His sin infected the entire race of humanity. Every account of sin in the Bible includes with it the details of those who are affected and the damage done to others. At this point, though, perhaps Abram is thinking, you know what? Hey, this worked out really well. I'm loaded. I'm set for life. Look at all this stuff. Isn't it interesting how we can find ways to justify what we know is wrong 
in so many different directions. Just because you're materially prosperous does not mean God's favor is on your life. Woo, this is an interesting circumstance this man has got himself into. Well, you know, what we would hope is that he would say, okay, here's the deal. I know that God made me this promise. He said, through me, that is my, my offspring, my answer, I'm going to have kids, and, and I'm going to be a great nation, my name is going to be great, and the Messiah is going to come forth from my line. Yeah, my, my wife is older, she's, she's barren, but you know God made a promise, and I'm going to lean into that. So I don't need to be deceptive, I don't need to lie, I don't need to cheat, I don't need to, need to manipulate the situation. I'm just going to trust and move forward. But there's no talking with God. There's no more worship. Um, he should have thought I'm indestructible being in the center of God's will and doing what's right. But he went into preservation mode. But you know, God will always keep his promise. He knows that Abram and Sarai have a special place in his redemptive purposes and no earthly king is gonna stop that. If God wants to, he will move heaven and earth to keep his promises. God's promises are always unilateral. They never depend on the human, right? They never do, why? Because God puts himself up for collateral. If the promises of God are dependent on some human, we're done. This is why you and I have to enter into contracts and we have to sign off because so often you don't keep your word, right? So we need to get, we need to get the full weight and the, for, the legal force to uh, you know, make sure that we're keeping up our end of the bargain, right? So this is why whenever God enters into a covenant, it's never like, hey, you do this, then I'll do this, right? God always says, no, no, it's just gonna be me. I'm gonna make a promise. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put myself up for collateral. That means I'm gonna do it. I'll follow through. I'm only bound by one thing God says. That is my nature, that is my, I'm only bound by my nature, so when I make a promise, I'm bound to keep it, not dependent upon you. Unilateral. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I then took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Get out of here. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife, and he let him keep all the stuff that he gave him. So life gets really bad for Pharaoh. Instantly, everybody around him gets sick. You know what's amazing about this? Talk about ruining your, your witness and your testimony by not trusting in God. God uses an unbelieving king to confront the man of faith. What does that say about his witness? What is being communicated about Abram's God to this unbelieving king? In fact, he tells him, why did, you, why did you lie? His testimony essentially is, is worthless. See, one of the lessons here is, is that if your doubt leads to disobedience, then you are dangerous to yourself and to others. The beautiful thing about this lesson also, though, is, and we'll see this throughout the life of Abram, your failure is never fatal with God. Praise God for that. Let me say that again, because some of you need to hear that. Because some of you just beat yourself up. Your failure is never fatal with God. God uses everything to bring about not only his purposes, but to bring about your faith in him. Are you guys familiar with the Biosphere 2 project down in Oracle, Arizona? Anybody been there? Nobody? One person? That's probably why they closed it down. Um, <laughs> good effort. So this really interesting project, though. Uh, basically, scientists created a dome under which they sought to replicate life. 
specifically plant life. And the goal was to make observations and to, and to sort of, in a way, hack nature, learn how things grow and, and make them grow faster and bigger, and hopefully, you know, the idea of feeding more people. So if you read about it, they stumbled across uh, an unforeseen consequence. Right? In fact, they'd probably say this is one of the top two or three things they didn't anticipate but that they, but that they learned from this, this experiment. So they were able to grow plants very, very quickly. But what they discovered is that these plants were not maturing. So for example, you'd see trees that would grow very fast, but then eventually they would fall in on themselves. And what they learned is the importance of wind. Apparently, in God's grand design of nature, wind is absolutely essential to plant life. In fact, all plant life. And, and here's what was revealed. As, let's say, a tree begins to grow, the winds blow against it, and it causes the tree to sway back and forth. And as it does that, there's actually a specific type of wood that's being produced within that tree. They call it reaction wood, also known as stress wood. And it's the wind blowing on the tree, and the tree kind of bends, and it flexes, and it's stressed out a little bit, and it bends this way, and it's bending all over, and that stress causes the tree to stiffen up. This is why you see trees growing in like, you ever seen those like circus trees where they grow them in all crazy like shapes and stuff like that? They kind of, they're like this high and then they turn sideways and then they grow up like that. If you try to create a building like that, it would fall in on itself. But trees are able to take these weird shapes and be super strong. They also learn that as that wind blows against the tree and creates that stress, it also causes the roots to grow deeper. Interesting. You see, as we continue to read about the life of Abram, we're going to read about all these different winds that come into his life. Same is true for you and me. Sometimes these winds, they're just casual ones, right? Small things. Little small, little external pressures. Sometimes they're big. I have cancer. I have a loved one who is struggling. I've got some addiction. There's some really strong, they will, life has a way of taking things away from you. Then what? If you and I learn to lean into God when those strong winds blow, it actually produces the right kind of resistance that strengthens your faith, that allows you to mature into the kind of tree that ends up providing shade for others. But you don't get there unless you're willing to trust in God's promises and his word. So, 
Every single person in this room has some measure of wind in his or her life, without a doubt. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Seize it as an opportunity to grow your faith. You say, it's not easy, I know. It's not easy. But I'll tell you, the alternative is worse. And over time, as you taste and see that the Lord is good, you begin to understand the nature of God and the goodness of God. See, my prayer for Illuminate is that we would have these giant oak trees. These giant oak trees that do provide shade for those around us. We're a young church, five, six years old. And as God continues to grow us and mature us, we want to grow well. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I feel like every single week as we open up the good words of this book, there's something new that God is pressing in on me. My prayer is it would be the same for you, that the Spirit of God would be speaking to you, that we would all respond and listen. But the response is one of faith and trust. And as always, Father, we rely on your spirit to press in. Father, for those of us that just need some encouragement, God, would you bring that? Father, for those of us that just need a, we need a fresh touch from you, God, would you give it to us? And for those of us who feel like, man, the wind is, I don't know, the wind is blowing really hard right now, and I'm not sure that I can take it. God, would you remind us that with you, we are able to handle anything that comes our way. Father, we ask that you would continue to grow us, mature us. We're so grateful for the example of Abram. But most importantly, for the message that you are faithful, that our failures are never fatal, and that you use it all in the test as part of our testimony, all for your glory so that Jesus can be made known and be made famous. We ask it. In the name of the one who makes it all possible, and his name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.